listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. This is CISD for SOAS Radio with me, Annabelle Roberts. Following up on the event Refugee Crisis, Perceptions, Realities, Solutions, I'm joined by Natalie Bennett, leader of the Green Party. Good afternoon, Natalie, and welcome to the studio today. Great to be here. Thank you. Last week, we had the talk Refugee Crisis, Perceptions, Reality and Solutions, in which there was a special focus on the migrant camp in Calais. With winter upon us and conditions in the camp worsening every day, what do you think the government's response should be, if any? Well, I think we very definitely need a response. I mean, I visited the camp with Jenny Jones, our member of the House of Lords, um, before winter arrived. It was in, in November. And conditions then were clearly horrific. Many people there were ill and injured. Uh, and since winter has arrived, you know, I can just imagine you know, how difficult a struggle life is there. And the fact is that we really should not be seeing such horrific conditions, people being treated in this way in the centre of Europe. What we want to see is what, what we, we as the Green Party, what we need to see for pure humanity is to ensure that the French government and the British government get together and you know, agree a rapid but fair means by which those refugees, most of whom want to come to Britain, are able to apply for refugee status in Britain. Many of them have good cause to be able to come to Britain. Family ties, you know, it, it's quite quite astonishing how many people you meet there who have husbands or wives or children even in Britain and there just doesn't seem to be any way for them to get through to come to Britain legally and so they feel they have to smuggle themselves in illegally. Uh, people who have you know, close, other close relatives, family ties here, community ties here. You know, they're people who really, really want to come to Britain and they could contribute and so we should be ensuring that we find a way to process their applications find them a proper home particularly now that winter has arrived that you know makes the urgency even greater than it was before so that's what we should be doing and then of course we have to ask the question of you it's not much point in emptying the camp out if it immediately fills up again which then raises the broader question of what's happening across Europe and the fact that Britain and many other countries simply aren't offering to take their fair share offering to welcome their fair share of the refugees unlike for example Sweden which has already taken 190,000 refugees and has virtually closed its borders because it's simply you know, groaning at the seams physically. Now it has a population of about 10 million, about less than a sixth of the population of Britain. 190,000 there. In Britain, by the end of this year, David Cameron is proposing that we take 4,000 Syrian refugees. It's clearly utterly unacceptable. And if you go back even to before the last general election in the leader debates, I was then calling on David Cameron to take our fair share of Syrian refugees. And the issue has just become so much more pressing since then with regard to Calais and, of course, around the world. Now, the government has stood by its uh, strong adherence to the Dublin regulations on migration and refugees. If you were to lift this, um, how would you keep issues of national security, which have been very prominent, especially after the Paris attacks, in mind when allowing such a lot of people into the country? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it's worth pointing out, particularly with regard to Calais, that there's what are known as the Dublin Three regulations. And without getting too technical about this, they basically allow for close family reunion. Now, I think 
you know, it's a question of how you define close, but I think many of the people in Calais certainly have a family reunion, community reunion um, claim there. So you're not drawing a line through those Dublin regulations. And actually, for people who are listening who don't know what they are, the basic underlying principle of, of the Dublin regulations is that people should claim asylum in the first safe country that they come to. Uh, but of course, we know that how desperate the situation is in countries like Greece and Italy in terms of provision for refugees. And understandably, people you know, want to go to places where they're going to feel safe and secure and can build a future life. Their life has been torn apart by war, torn apart by political repression. And people you know, want to feel a sense of safety and security. And that's a very, very understandable human need. In terms of the security question, I mean, obviously, we need to have screening, we need to have you know, checks. But of course, among the best people to be able to help us with that are the refugees themselves. They're the people who actually know each other, know people's backgrounds. And you know, a sensible screening program is obviously a necessary part. But you know, I think we, we really need to acknowledge that these are people who are fleeing IS, fleeing the Assad regime. These are people who've very explicitly you know, shown that they don't want to fight. David Cameron has recently praised the Bulgarian Prime Minister's stance on border controls. Do you think this plays into the hands of ISIS in terms of increasing divisions between the West and the Middle East? Well, I think you know, this is a really disappointing sign of further developments of, of what the European Greens have labelled and talked about a great deal as fortress Europe. The idea that if we can just stick up taller and taller fences and somehow that will stop the people coming. And yet we know what happens is that you, you stick a fence up in one place and it becomes impenetrable. People will go and find another, often far more dangerous route to mm. attempt to get into Europe, to attempt to find a place of safety, a place of security. And that's perfectly understandable. And it is worth, really worth stressing, because I think it's, it's not generally understood, that actually only about 5%, looking specifically at Syrian refugees, only about 5% of them are seeking refuge in Europe. 95% of them are, are seeking refuge in, in the neighbouring countries, in countries you know, incredibly already crowded, very, with lots of difficult economic and other circumstances, places like Lebanon, Jordan uh, and Turkey. So, so that's um, you know, into entirely... The, the wrong direction, fortress Europe. We need to be providing people with a safe, legal way of coming to Europe so they don't have to put their hands themselves in the hands of the people's smugglers. And I think you know, it's very clear that we get into here broader questions about how we make ourselves in Britain, the whole world, safer and more secure. And the way to do that is not to build higher and higher fences because eventually, eventually those fences will never be enough. What we need to do is build a safe, stable, secure world. And that's a long-term target, but that means you know, supporting human rights and democracy, which means absolutely not supporting the hideous human rights abusing regime that Saudi Arabia and not, uh, not only exporting arms to them, but as we currently do now, subsidising arms exports to Saudi Arabia. Uh, it means fighting hunger and disease. Uh, and it means you showing that we are a humane, decent, welcoming country who recognises human need, who respects its, its, um, the, the requirements of the UN Convention on Refugees. And it is really worth looking back over history. Britain has a very, very long tradition of providing refuge, providing asylum to a wide range of people over centuries, some of whom would be classed as refugees, some of whom, if you put modern classifications on them, were economic migrants. In relation to Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the recent 
passing of Parliament for the Syrian bombings. Do you think that the UK should take a stronger stance against Saudi Arabia? And do you think it had a right to legitimise, partly legitimise the bombings by saying it was aiding the Syrian people when it refuses to extend an arm just across the channel? Well, I think there's two questions in there, and one is about the Syrian bombing and the other is about Saudi. And, and, and I'll, um, I'll take a start on the Saudis, which is you, you said, you know, should we take a stronger stance against them? I'm afraid at the moment we're currently embracing them as tightly and basically <laughs> doing whatever they want uh, and saying we'll do whatever we want uh, with regard to them. And that means everything from royal visits to arms sales. Um, and you... We've been here so many times before. In various times in history, Colonel Gaddafi was, quote-unquote, our dictator. Saddam Hussein was our dictator. Go back a bit further, the Shah of Iran was our man. Uh, and all of those ended very badly. Uh, and you know, Saudi Arabia, where we've pumped all of those weapons into that situation, where we've shown all of our support that, of course, the people of Saudi Arabia know very well, when this dreadful repressive regime ends as it must that's going to be another you know great giant mess that we've contributed to so that that's what i'd say on saudi um in terms of the syrian bombing i mean again this is a tactic that we've military into adventurism interventionism we've done it in afghanistan we've done it in iraq we've done it in libya and it has not left us with any kind of stable, secure, long-term situations. It's not even yet created short-term stability. Um, Eleven armies have already been bombing in Syria. We're the 12th military to go in. Um, you, this is simply utterly and clearly the wrong direction. And you, it's become very clear, it was clear before, but even clearer afterwards, that we don't have an exit strategy. The idea that there's some sort of cohesive force of 70,000 uh, you know, ready to be an alternative to both Assad and ISIS doesn't stand up under any kind of scrutiny. Um, and you, we really would have thought, and we really thought in 2013, when, when of course Parliament voted not to bomb Assad, not to bomb the other side to what we're now bombing, um, then you thought the parliamentarians have really listened to the, the million people who came out and marched against the Iraq war. And that clearly had and still is having an impact. But it's really important that we get out on the streets again, that we show, demonstrate on the streets, send very clear messages to our parliamentarians that we, the people, know that this isn't the way forward. And finally, you've given a very good argument for why we should open our borders to further refugees but especially since the Paris attacks there's been an increasing prominence in hostility, uh, xenophobia, uh, racism. We saw today that Marie Le Pen of the far-right party in France recently made huge gains in their elections and in the UK a recent survey found that citizens' hostility towards refugees has increased. Now this might just be a knee-jerk reaction, but how do you counter that kind of rhetoric? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it is worth saying that um, although the results in France in the elections are disappointing, we have also just had the Oldham by-election here in Britain, uh, where UKIP who aren't the same as, as, as um, the Front National, but uh, UKIP, the, the uh, 
furthest right party in the race did very badly, much worse than was expected. And I think we can take that as a positive sign. And you, we shouldn't necessarily take what happens across the whole of Europe as a sign for British politics. Indeed, British politics is very much uh, heading in the opposite direction. You know, one sign of which is being the election of Jeremy Corbyn, another of the election, the results for the SNP in Scotland, when they were clearly positioned very much to the left of Labour. Uh, so you know, British politics in many ways is heading in the opposite direction. So it's, it's really worth saying that. But I think one of the things that we need to do to counter some of the, the dangerous rhetoric, the inflammatory rhetoric, and I think we're seeing this in terms of um, lots of you know, lovely signs. I think it was in Newcastle where a young woman was subjected to racist abuse mm-hmm. on the metro uh, and a whole lot of people came to her aid and you know, ensured that the person who was abusing her left the train at the next stop. Uh, and you know, signs like that, the sign of, of what we saw, the, the dreadful attack um, that we saw in East London, um, in which we saw you know, a very clear and just heartfelt and instinctive response from a passerby saying, you know, you don't represent me, you don't represent Muslims. So I think what we're seeing is a, is a, is a real... you. Know, when people are put to the test, when people are there on the spot, there's a real coming together supportiveness and inclusiveness there. And what we need to do is celebrate that, whilst also making sure that we talk about the the refugees not as, um, as David Cameron did sadly, as a swarm, not as a set of figures, but talk about them as people, as individuals, and tell you know, individual stories that help people to understand that, you know, who knows, we we pray not, but one day it might be them. You know, whether it's the the pregnant woman who the day I was in the, the Calais refugee camp, um, you know, she went into labour there, and she'd been living in the best accommodation anyone could find for her, which was a a damp and pretty poor condition old caravan. And that was the best that could be done for her. And you just think about the circumstances of someone like that suffering or indeed um, there's a very clear account from an independent journalist of a a woman in her 60s the widow um, of a Syrian uh, who came to join her son here and he had refugee status but the only way she felt she could get here was by smuggling herself into Britain stuffed beneath the back seat of a car a woman in her 60s with multiple health problems so I think when we talk about the people their circumstances the reasons why they want to come to Britain the more we talk about them as people, as individuals, then everyone's going to find something in a story that really relates to them and their life. Natalie Bennett, thank you very much. Thank you. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.